Hello and welcome to Birkbeck Voices, the monthly podcast from Birkbeck University of London. I'm Andrew Youngson. Each month we're out and about in the college speaking to academics, students and members of staff. This month we've been speaking to Colin Teban, Professor of Playwriting and Screenwriting, about his latest projects for the stage and screen, with Dr James Hammond about leading the first Western Volcanology Research Project in North Korea, and Professor Nick Keep about this year's packed programme for Birkbeck Science Week. So without delay, let's get cracking. First up, research focus. In January, it was announced that Game of Thrones star Kit Harington will star in a West End production of Christopher Marlowe's 16th century tragedy, Dr. Faustus. A lot of attention was placed on the Jon Snow actor's move from screen to stage, but also on a certain playwright who is sharing the bill with Mr. Marlowe, namely Birkbeck's very own Professor Colin Teban, who has introduced an exciting new structure to Marlowe's classic play about a man who makes a deal with the devil. Here, Professor Teven talks about his adaptation and its forthcoming star-studded production, plus his recent work on the small screen, in particular Rebellion, his award-winning series exploring the 1916 Easter Rising in Ireland. And wrapping it up, he also speaks about how his industry work enriches his teaching here at Birkbeck. Okay, and welcome to the podcast, Colin. Thank you very much for finding time in your busy Most schedule. Um Speaking of busy schedules, it's been a crazy year for you, you know, last 12 months. Could you give me a quick whistle-stop tour just to establish just how much you've been involved in? Last year, 2015, kicked off with on the very first Sunday of the year with the broadcast of the first episode of a miniseries I wrote for Irish television called Charlie, which starred Aidan Gillen, who's probably known better known for uh, his role as Littlefinger in Game of Thrones, um, as well as Mayor Carchetti in The Wire. Um, and also, I, I think Aidan first came to prominence in um, Queer as Folk, actually back in the late 90s. Um, and that was a three 90-minute films about Charles Hawhey, who was Taoiseach, Prime Minister of Ireland, from uh, on and off between 1979 and 1992. And very much was the man who, uh, in one sense, invented the Celtic Tiger with all its uh, good points and bad points. Um, and uh, Aidan won uh, IFTA, which is the Irish BAFTAs for Best Performance, uh, in a leading role for that. Um, and then I was, at, the, at that time actually, you know, that had taken three years to sort of come to um, the screens, but at that time I was also developing um, a drama which we filmed last summer, so in the summer of 2015, called Rebellion, which uh, was to coincide, it's broadcast to coincide with this year, with the uh, centenary of the 1916 Rising, which is the uh, the rising by which the first part of the United Kingdom broke away from uh, from British rule. Um, and um, I suppose there was a huge time pressure on that. We had to write, record, edit, deliver the whole thing um, so that it, it was broadcast on the first Sunday of 2016. So in one sense, uh, my Januaries of the last two years have been pretty hectic. And and the current step that you're going through, if I'm right, is returning to theatre writing. You've got a, a piece going on in the West End in April, is that right? Yeah, um, we're, well, uh, Dr. Faustus, this is an adaptation, well, it's not an adaptation. Um, I actually discussed with the producers, it, it, it was it's actually been done before in 2013 with uh, West Yorkshire Playhouse in Glasgow Sits, and now it's coming to the West End with Kit Harrington. Another Game of Thrones star. You're, you're, you're sweeping up the Game of Thrones. Absolutely. We had, we, we had Michelle Fairley, who's better known as Caitlin Stark, um, is in Rebellion. Um, and Ian McElhenney, who plays Barristan. Uh, I'm not even actually a, an avid viewer of Game of Thrones, so I just uh, 
And then hilariously, yes, Game of Th- uh, Kit Harrington is um, is to play the lead in and it's uh, opening at the Duke of York's in April. So what you know, this is a piece I've done before, but it was a really interesting um, journey making it because uh, I mean, Doctor Faustus is well-renowned as a classic and Marlowe's version of the Faust story because it comes from a German folktale um, was I suppose the world's first blockbuster certainly in theatre and certainly the world's first blockbuster version of the story the interesting thing is it's got some of the finest poetry uh, Elizabethan poetry in in it um, but it is not particularly good drama um, for a series of dramaturgical reasons in that Faustus has made his decision from the word go and then spends two acts discussing it and it's not hugely interesting. And then there are another two acts where he tours the world for 24 years doing magic tricks and I think it's largely believed that uh, Marlowe didn't write those acts. They're very poor, they're, you know, they're, they, they contain a lot of slapstick that has gone really gone off a bit over the 400 years. And then the fifth act, which is absolutely devastatingly moving, so what I did was, um, you know, there's actually even a letter from a theatre manager to Samuel Rowley. Um, ironically, one of my, my mother's uh, mother's surname was Rowley as well, so maybe it's in the family. Mm-hmm. Uh, Samuel Rowley and Thomas Middleton uh, commissioning them to write new acts for Dr. Fosties um, in 1604, after Marlowe had died. So it's it's likely that these, were, these acts were um, added. Um, and... You know, added in the sense of like the way uh, action is added to Hollywood movies now, you know, just they wanted to show off their technology at the time. So what I did was I took out those acts and have written a kind of almost a completely new centre to the play. Um, so we have Marlowe's two acts and my two acts and then we go back to his final act. And it's like a play. So we move forward in time and we are backstage at the magic show of Dr. Foster, Dr. Faustus. And I suppose the idea is that hell, the hell that he is consigned to, is the permanent performance of Dr. Faustus, mm. the magic show. How does what you do in the real world relate to what you do here in the classroom? Um, well, I mean, uh, partly it's, it's very much talking about how I, you know, I, I base my teaching on um, the the experience I have as a writer in the real world, the, you know, the questions I need to ask myself, the, um, the methodologies I would apply to writing something or addressing a particular problem. So if I have a student who wants to write about X, Y, or Z, you know, I will, uh, you know, I'm able to think about processes that may help her or him achieve that. Um, I think the one interesting thing for me about teaching is it just keeps me thinking about, um, I think it's a danger as a writer, you know, that you lock yourself away and you write and you, you have your own way of working. And I think that could become a bit arid after a while, you know, you will just work in the same way. And I think the one, the interaction with students for me is I keep thinking, you know, they, they continually present new ways of approaching a subject or new ideas and that keeps me fresh and it keeps me thinking about it the way I work so I think that is very helpful for me um, I think the other thing that I can really bring students here is that I have a broad experience of the of three industries really radio television and theatre all three forms are all collaborative forms you can't go in as the big diva and just say that's the way it is you're doing it my way because actually you know you'll 
people will believe, think then, even if the script's great, they think they can't work with you. You mm. become problematical. Um, and also that way of working isn't going to sustain you for a career. Um, so in one sense, uh, a lot of it's about learning to um, learning how how something can uh, gain from a collaboration. Mm. And you know, in one sense, that starts in the classroom here when you're working with myself and others uh, putting giving input into your work and encouraging you to see new things and potential ways of seeing it. So I think that is another thing that can be brought to it. Um, and also in the past, I suppose one thing, I, I, I mean, I've there are several people who have been in classes of mine who I have then, who I've believed are good enough to cut it at a professional level. And you know, De- Dennis Kelly, who is... Uh, <laughs> probably vastly more experienced or successful than I am um, I showed up in a class of mine at the National Theatre that I gave and I immediately passed his play to the Theatre 503 and he was in rehearsal within a week and he hasn't <laughs> looked back since he's you now he wrote Matilda uh, and the West End and uh, you know so I think there is that um, and David Eldridge who teaches here is the same you know I think um, part of our job is also you know putting people in touch with the people who can really help them and if we think someone's of a professional standard we will put them the way of the people who can who can bring that out so i think there i mean there are various so those, those are various things like i i suppose i can bring to the teaching um and i think just you know lifetime reading and writing scripts in the dramatic form uh, i think i'm pretty have a fairly good idea of what works and what doesn't work um, and I think the you know, also I suppose I learn. I, I was never taught playwriting, and the one thing I would say, you know, people say, can you teach it? And then you go, well, that's ludicrous. If you teach music composition, you can teach visual arts, fine arts. Why can't you teach mm-hmm. writing? I mean, the one thing is you can never teach real talent. What you can do though is, you know, I I could probably, you know, I could, I would hope that you know, coming to us would save you ten years of trial and error, which is I suppose the way I had to learn. Um, you know, in the sense that, you know, we can encourage, show people what works and what doesn't work and why, and we've formalized that into a teaching method. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, there is the absolute imperative ingredient of, I'd say two ingredients of, uh, that we would want in a student, which are, is uh, talent, but also ambition. You know, there is an ambition, and the ambition isn't just to be, want to be a great writer. That's, I think the ambition has got to be to, um, know to to the ambition to tell big important stories is really uh key you know that's what especially in drama that's what people want people you know it's a kind of it's you can do the quiet personal little thing in the in the novel or the short story because it's sort of very much an individual to an individual relationship but when you're telling stories to mass groups of people they've got to be big they've got to be ambitious and i think that's uh and that's uh, that's got to be something you want to do it's uh, and it's not everyone's cup of tea professor colin teven there his adaptation of dr faustus starring kit harrington runs at the duke of york's theater from the 9th of april to the 25th of june next up it's the birkbeck people slot Over the past few years, Dr. James Hammond of Birkbeck's Department of Earth and Planetary Science has led a truly pioneering research project in the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. His project, recording earthquakes and collecting geological samples at Mount Paektu, is the first of its kind to be produced jointly between a Western nation and North Korea. Here, Dr. Hammond speaks about the project and how his interest in earth sciences was first sparked.
So my name is James Hammond. I'm a lecturer in geophysics at the, in the Department of Earth and Planetary Sciences. My main, well, I have a teaching role, which is teaching geophysics and some more computational side of the uh, Earth Science degree. Um, and then my research, which is trying to use seismology, use earthquake data to image inside the Earth. One of the nice things about our project is that actually the politics hasn't really got in the way, at least on the DPRK side. The biggest challenge we faced was uh, dealing with the international sanctions. We take very specialised equipment, so seismometers, uh, things like this, and we also wanted to take some equipment that we can use to measure the Earth's conductivity. Now, unfortunately, that uses very sensitive equipment to measure the magnetic field, which can be considered a dual-use item. Well, what that means is it has civilian and military purposes. So we had a two-year discussion with the government in the UK, government in the US, and it was decided that the project could go ahead, but without this specific piece of equipment. So there was a lot of discussion with our colleagues in DPRK, to explain these decisions, to make sure everyone was happy, and we redesigned our project slightly. The volcano itself is a, is a stunning place. I mean, it's absolutely beautiful. It's um, about two and a half thousand meters above sea level. Um, it's got a four, four, five kilometer wide lake at the summit, which was formed during an eruption about a thousand years ago. The border between DPRK and China runs right the way through the middle of the lake. So I've been fortunate enough to be many times on both sides of the volcano. In the winter, it gets down to minus 40 degrees, um, covered in snow for a good five, six months of the year. Not only the science is exciting, or we think so, it's, it's the first collaboration of this kind between DPRK scientists and Western scientists. We've got a lot of data, so we're going to continue working that up with our Korean colleagues. And I'll be going to Pyongyang in April for that reason. My interest in, in earth science, really, came from when I was at school. I had a, a rather inspirational geography teacher. He was an amazing guy, Ashley Hale, and he used to travel around the world as well and go and send us all postcards from his adventures, you know, driving across the African continent or through the Amazon rainforest. And from that, I got this fascination for the Earth, the planet, um, as well as for traveling. And I took a, did a geophysics degree at Leeds and lucky enough had a very um, good PhD supervisor who took me to the Seychelles, which was where my project was based. That was a, a hardship, you can imagine. Went to Bristol um, with him and met uh, Steve Sparks and the other volcanologists at Bristol. And they really got fascinated with this idea that to date we haven't had a very satisfactory way of trying to understand where magma and molten rock is stored beneath volcanoes. We've lacked the tools to image that. And so that's really motivated a lot of my research over the years, trying to understand how we can use seismology better. Dr. James Hammond and his pioneering volcanology research in North Korea. Last up this edition of Birkbeck Voices, it's the calendar. 
In April, Birkbeck's science research and teaching programmes will be showcased to the public in the annual Science Week. From inspiring talks to film screenings, lab tours, panel discussions and more, members of the public will be able to engage with a wide range of fascinating ologies, including astrobiology, petrology and psychology, and all for free. I caught up with Professor Nick Keep, Executive Dean of the School of Science, to find out what to expect at this year's Science Week. So, so uh, Nick, to, to waste no time, what is Science Week? Science Week is an annual opportunity to display some of the exciting research that's going on in the School of Science at Birkbeck. We aim to have a series of lectures and events aimed at anybody who has the slightest interest in science. We don't expect people to be experts in any of the fields. We, we try and get colleagues to present their work at a level where anybody could come along and get, get something out of what we're presenting. What are some of the, the highlights or are there particular themes this year? Could you just give us a bit of a walkthrough? Sure. Um, so probably the highlight of Science Week this year is the first of our Rosin and Franklin lectures. This is part of our Athena Swan initiative to, to promote women in science-based su- subjects. And our first Rosin and Franklin speaker is Professor Elspeth Gardman from Oxford. She's a well-known protein crystallographer. And protein crystallography is one of the things that Birkbeck has traditionally been well known for, for, and I'm sure Elspeth will give a really interesting general talk on crystallography and its uses in modern science. Some of the other, I mean, I'm just looking at the list down here, it's, 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 a, it's a full-packed uh, schedule coming on. Uh, I mean, some of the physical spaces that are going to be explored, for example, is going to be um, in, the, in the petrology lab. I mean, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, the Petrology Lab is an exciting new teaching laboratory that we have built last summer and we're having our official launch during Science Week. So this is going to be an opportunity for people to come along and have a look at some rocks down the microscopes and experience a little bit of what it would be like to study petrology, that's the study of rocks, at Birkbeck in this exciting new facility that's on the Tuesday afternoon. Then later in that day, we've got four short talks by some of our colleagues in the Earth Sciences Department looking at things like meteorites and the the solar system and extraterrestrial materials. So that's a chance to to look at the science behind whether there has ever been life on other planets and what we can learn from that. Brilliant. I mean, it sounds like there is quite a lot of uh, talks being touched on here, and you've already mentioned there that there are various reasons why somebody would want to to come and experience the the research up close here at the School of Science. Um, just to reiterate again, why why should people attend? What what um, background should they come from, or can they come with an absolutely clean slate? Is it for more of an academic audience? Is it for a completely lay audience? It's definitely for a lay audience. I'm academic. Colleagues will speak at many conferences or or technical presentations within their departments, and that that's where we'd expect them to interact with their academic colleagues. This is designed for for the general public. So typically, we we get some sixth form students coming along, perhaps one or two even younger members of the general public. You know, people people with arts degrees. We get we get colleagues from within in in the administrative departments of the college coming along to find out what we do. It's a it's a whole range of people, and we. People are trying hard to get get over their research at, at every possible level. So, if you are if you are an expert in a particular field, then it is it is a chance for you to come and engage 
with, with with researchers in that area, but but expect expect things to be explained in simple analogies and tr- you know trying to get get across in not in a very non technical manner. I mean, you you yourself um, come from a biological sciences background. Yeah. Um, in your own experiences, how difficult is it to take heady scientific concepts and convey them in an easy bite sized way? You sometimes lose some some of the real technical nuances and and the details of the argument, but certainly you can get you can get across your basic point very very clearly by relating what you're seeing at at the microscopic macromolecular level to to processes that you can you can des- describe it in in everyday life. I mean, yes, the, there are there are a lot of very te- technical details in doing science, but but the heart of it there are relatively straightforward concepts that people can and do get across very clearly so there's an one colleague has an an, an analogy of the traffic system in los angeles they tracked all the taxis for a day and that's very like how 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 cells traffic particles around within us in a cell so that's a real life example where you can relate something at the microscopic human level down to what's going on inside the cell and that those are the kind of analogies that people draw in science week and i guess i mean it's very important as well to get that across um, because the impact of what happens in the lab um, or that displayed within academic journals it, it does come down to what it means to human life absolutely i mean most people go into science because they're very interested in the subject but also because they they hope hope to do something good good for humanity very few of us certainly not me are, are lucky enough to make a drug that gets to market i believe even if you work in the pharmaceutical industry only about one in ten workers in the pharmaceutical industry have actually worked on a drug that make it makes it through the clinic there's an enormous amount of scientific research that go that goes on and all of it's important in in leading to to the few things like like the break the breakthrough drugs that really change people's lives but you have to have a massive amount of research going on for these few very significant breakthroughs to be made thank you very much nikki and that concludes our latest edition of Bartbeck voices thanks for listening If you'd like to get in touch about the podcast, just drop us a line at communications at bbk.ac.uk. For links to all the events mentioned in this episode, check out the notes below. See you next time.